Dave here. Just off the top, I wanted to say how thrilled I am to announce another sponsor has come on board. Huge thanks to the Edmonton International Street Performers Festival for joining our team and helping to bring you this bio-episode. This one pays tribute to the 2015 Busker Hall of Fame inductee, Gazo, who, by coincidence, just happened to be at the very first Edmonton Street Fest back in 1985. Going into its 31st year, the Edmonton International Street Performers Festival is the largest and longest-running festival of its kind in North America. Street Fest features a cast of international street acts and over 1,500 outdoor shows in downtown Edmonton's Churchill Square. Visit edmontonstreetfest.com for more information. I also wanted to personally thank the festival's producer, Shelley Switzer, who's been a longtime supporter of a lot of my crazy ideas. Many, many moons ago, we sat down for a dinner and discussed having Street Fest commission me to do a new show. This eventually led me to creating The Kong Show, The Executives, and also The Juggling Sherpas. But it was over dinner that night that Shelley said something that stuck with me and has become a permanent part of this podcast. Use your superpowers for good, she said. This inspired me to search, to create, and to be the best possible citizen of this amazing community that I could be. I don't always get it right, but I do the best I can. Okay, let's get to it. When you're a boxer, you lose weight, and you have to maintain that weight. But when you get older, you get heavier. So the more weight you take off, the weaker you become. Because you have to work at maintaining that weight. Right. You look at a 15-year-old boy, he can make any weight because he just doesn't have to eat and he loses weight, but he doesn't lose his strength. So what I'm saying is I've maintained my weight class for three decades. Do you think there's a parallel between boxing and street performing? Boxing has a parallel between any industry, I think. So yeah. it's keeping the weight off, taking on all comers and all challenges, staying lean and mean. Yeah. Yeah. Ready to walk into the ring. Yeah. I'm a champion at my weight class, you know. But if I go up to another weight class, say, I'm fighting at featherweight right. all my life, and I've become a champion at featherweight, but if I go up to... Uh, you're starting to put on a bit more weight. Yeah. <laughs> no longer featherweight. <laughs> if I go up to middleweight, then I'm fighting guys that are naturally middleweighted people. Right. And I wouldn't be able to compete with them. Right. You know. And the middleweight people in this industry are... Penn and Teller, amazing Jonathan, great performers at different level. Right. I can hold my own against anybody in the world when it comes to my environment. Right. And the streets are my environment. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the checkerboard guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. This time around, we dive into a conversation I had in Dubai with a guy who's probably done more street shows than any other performer I know. I first met Gazo at the 1988 Ottawa International Buskers Festival. This was the first of a three-city tour produced by the Halifax Busker Organization. There was a wicked charm about this cheeky street magician that captivated crowds. His natural charisma, combined with an incredible work ethic, fueled a performing machine that was one of the most efficient and effective I'd ever seen. Gazo had a special relationship with late co-founder of this project, Robert Nelson, the Butterfly Man, so I thought it was important to insert a little Robert into this episode in a few key places where the two had some epic exchanges. Now, the topic of stealing material comes up during this conversation, and I just wanted to preface things by saying that by no means do I feel I'm an authority on the subject. In fact, I'm completely guilty of begging, borrowing, and stealing ideas and concepts at various points in my career. But I think we should aspire to taking the raw materials of inspiration in a new direction. 
It'll make us all better performers and give our audiences a less generic experience. There's no doubt that Gazo has given audiences around the world a truly authentic experience and a life that's filled with so many great stories from the pitch. So we're here in Dubai. Yeah, full places. And I'm sitting with probably one of the most legendary performers that the street has ever known. Mm-hmm. How'd you get started? Oh, I started when I was about 19. I didn't go full-time, though. Maybe 18 or 19. And I just was a weekend warrior. And then I moved to London. So where were you before London, sorry? Oxford. Okay. I, I grew up in a place called Dicker, which is like 50 minutes drive from Oxford. And I used to work Oxford at the weekends. Okay, let's backtrack before you started going on doing street shows. Where did the magic thing? How'd you start with that? I started magic because I went on holiday when I was about 15 and it was my first experience with a magic shop mm-hmm. and the gentleman's name was Murray and he was an Australian escape artist and he had a, a magic shop in Blackpool uh-huh. he sent me down to see a gentleman called Ken Brook and uh, Ken Brook's at a place in Wardle Street, London which is Soho area called the Ace Place Ken Brook's Magic Ace Place anyway I went in to see Ken Brook I remember Ken Brook being at a convention sometime when I was like 14, I saw him there, and I mentioned to him that when I went to his county, he did a trick. Uh, what, what was the trick, do you remember? It was an egg bag trick, yeah. Okay. He did an egg bag routine, which is a standard trick in magic. And he said, oh, you remember that? I said, yeah, I remember that convention, that was a good convention, you were there? And I said, yeah, I watched you do that trick. I said, you sell that trick? He said, you know I don't have any egg bags to sell, but you can have this one. He pulled out a bag of his top pocket and gave me it. And I had that bags, you know, for nearly 40 years. From when you were a teenager? Yeah. It was a collector's bag, yeah. I think I still got it somewhere. I actually sold it to Gary Animal, and the Gary Animal swapped it for a red egg bag I had. <laughs> so I got it back. But you're mostly known for your cards and your cups these days, right? Yeah. Well, I realize that the egg bag is not a good street trick to perform. It's good for a captive audience, like a theater audience. Sure. So I learned very quickly the tricks to perform on the streets, and the best one would be the cups and balls. Was it trial and error when you went out, first of all? It was always trial and error, because I had no one to look onto, and I had no teachers. So I learned through the hard knocks of trench warfare, basically. I learned as I went across... To different locations in around Oxfordshire. Well, it was actually when I go back to the Cambrook story, I asked him, I want to learn magic, where could I get someone to teach me? And he said, Well, you know, you really want to have a venue. And I said, I don't understand what you mean. And he said, Well, you need somewhere to perform magic, you know. And he said, The best thing to do is go in busking pubs. Okay. Go, to, go to pubs, put a poster up saying there's going to be a magic show every Thursday if you can ask the owner of the pub if it would be okay to do that and luckily the pubs around where I lived they allowed me to do that so I went around busking in the pubs for a little bit every Thursday and I, I learned very quickly to perform for an adult audience and I was probably 15 or 16 years old and you learn very quickly the right and wrong things to do you know so how did you end up getting to London from this too from well I moved to London because when I finished performing in the pubs I started street performing weekends you know and then I thought, well, the best place to go would be London, because in Oxford it was kind of illegal. Mm. Sometimes a cop would stop you, and sometimes they'd let you get away with it, and sometimes they'd watch you, and once they realised you weren't a menace and you were just performing, they'd let you get away with it. But if the crowd got too big, you're blocking the pavements, they'd just tell you you got sure, to pick yeah. up. Yeah. But they didn't tolerate it, as I say back then, you know. So how old were you when you went from Oxford to London? 
about 18. 18 years old? Yeah. Okay. And how long were you in London? Uh, about seven years, six, seven years. No, five years. I was my five year because I went to America when I was like 22. Okay. So four years in London. And wh- where were you working in London? I started at Camden Town. And what year is this? About 79. So punk rock. Yeah, I was right in the era of punk rock, yeah. So you were in Camden during the era of yeah, punk rock, yeah. so you were surrounded by safety pins and... Yeah, it was, well, it was all over England, not just London. Sure. We actually dressed up that way when we were kids. <laughs> safety <laughs> pins in our ears, we all did that, yeah. That was so, a great era, that was. So you were right there at that time? Yeah. In the, and at the right age, because 18, yeah. 19, 20, it's a perfect age for being a punk rocker. Yeah, to rebel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that's partly what influenced the style that you have as an entertainer? No, 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 not at all. I had no influence on it whatsoever. Um, but you enjoyed the energy of this period? Yeah, well, I was. I grew up with it, so you're part of it, aren't you? So, yeah, it was a good, you know, your parents hated it. You know, like, if you come on with a tattoo, your parents go crazy, but they get used to the tattoo on your arm, so they grow with it. Right. You know, seeing a guy with orange hair or safety pins in his ears or in his lip, it's like, you didn't really pierce your lip. They can today. Right. But back then, you pretended it was in your lip by bending the sharp point of the pin round, so you just put it in your right. cheek. So you say, look, I got a safety cheek piercing. But when you actually go to a club and you see a guy that's actually gone through it, you know, it made you nauseous. <laughs> see, the image was everything, but when you actually saw it, it was yeah, a little bit too it much. All, it was all fake, yeah. yeah. So, uh, four years in London performing in Camden Town. Camden Town. Then I moved from Camden Town because they shut the market down. They, they closed the pitch up. They put um, tables and chairs out where we used to perform. Were there other people performing there as well? Yeah. John Lenahan, American guy, had come there. I would go only Saturday and Sunday to the market. Or was it Sunday? I can't remember. I think it was just weekends mm. in Camden Town. And then I would also perform at Portobello Road. One day in Portobello Road and then two days in Camden Town. So the guy from the US was there? Who else? John Lenahan had come to Camden Town and uh, he started to sort of take over the pitch because he was really a strong performer. But I learned very quickly that a performer that's stronger than you, you know, 40 feet away, would steal your energy, your crowd. And so you had to learn to become strong very quickly. From Camden, I went to Covent Garden. So this is beginning the years of Covent Garden as well? For me, uh, yeah, it was like 79. Yeah, but I mean, how long had Covent Garden been, like from when it had been converted from sort of a flower market? Covent Garden was sort of run-down place, and it was a flower market. It got sort of demolished with the atmosphere, and then it became a fruit market, right. I think. I, I, I don't know really the true history of it, but this was a decade before me, and then people started performing there and become what it is today. Right, so by the time you got there... It was already established, established. yeah. yeah. Again, it was illegal. The only place it was legal in England at that time was Covent Garden. There was a loophole in the law where you could actually perform in Covent Garden, but you had to perform on those two pitches, the West Piazza and the indoor pitch. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to perform and line up in those pitches, so I went around the edges and I performed on James Street, which is Magic Corner. And I was there with Jerry Sadowitz. Me and Jerry would go there out of the night, you know, when it was really late, Mm -hmm. when there was no one around and we'd perform for the opera crowds oh nice and there was a little street lamp there so that's how we ended up going to Covent Garden and uh, we went there one Saturday and the police had shut us down and uh, a guy a fellow performer was the name of Andre Vincent yeah, Harry 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 Harry. Harry. yeah. 
he was there and he said, look, why don't you just come and sign up for the indoor pitches? And I said, I, just, I don't want to line up. And he said, we'll just give it a go. So he went and introduced me to the, one of the managers and then they let me perform on the West Piazza. And I started doing that. Then I realized that you had to fulfill your, I think it was half hour slots back then. Mm. And uh, there was a lot of performers, but you had to line up at six in the morning. Mm. You know, it was like designed for people that live there, not for people that was visiting England. Right. I was frustrated. And, and you were there for a couple of years because... I had met a guy called Artist, the Spoon Man, uh-huh. and uh, he had come for a time-out competition, and I saw him in a style that I really, wow, this, this style was, because when artists performed, he needed focus. He, right. Artists couldn't really perform as well today because you get blown out by the amps and the hype shows. Sure. So he needs focus. He's like a puppeteer. Right. And he was playing spoons and he did Cat's Cradle in his show. But he actually put a mat out, a little mat, like a Moroccan mat, uh-huh. and he stood on that barefoot. He was kind of hippie-ish. But he pulled the crowd right in and he had tremendous focus mm. because he wasn't dependent upon the hat. He was dependent upon the atmosphere he was trying to create. Which you were successful at that. Did seeing that, did that help you with the focus that you created with the Cups and Balls show? No, but I sensed the atmosphere it created and I adopted that in many of my shows. Right. But I realized the way to make money is to do like big shows. Obviously, the bigger the crowd, the more money you make. It's just a given. Mathematics. Yeah, it's just the way it is, you know. It's kind of the prostitution side of performing. Um, whether I agree with it or not, it's just the way it is. You right. know, big crowd, big money. Right. You know, I found the way of working crowds quite easy. Right. I understand the psychology of crowds. Right, and it was. I mean, always starting with the card magic and then moving to the cups and balls at the end. Well, I did basically start with card magic, but what people miss about me was building a crowd by pure comedy lines and bits and pieces. Yeah energy you know and that is how I built my crowd once I got my crowd locked in then I could perform what I wanted and it was usually a vanishing silk back then oh okay vanishing silk and then a floating card a rising card to floating card then to the cups and balls and that show could I mean the duration of your show could last a little bit depending on the number of people you get in the crowd as well yeah I could do you know a 50 minute show to a 45 minute show and sometimes an hour. And at festivals, I felt that you needed to give them a bit more because it's a captive audience at a festival. It's not purely streets where you're trying to build a crowd on the streets. Right. At a festival, they're there waiting for you. You know, they're programmed into seeing a performance. But festivals is later, right, in your history? Well, festivals did come later because there wasn't such a thing as festivals mm. back then. There were festivals in England. Mm. But to get invited into those festivals, you had to have a name for yourself. Right. And back then, I didn't have a name. Um, and that is when Halifax come about and Dick Finkel's festival, mm-hmm. you know, they become the precursor of what it is today. Sure. You know? yeah. So uh, London, you're playing in Portobello Road. Candom Town. Candom Town, and then Covent Garden. Covent Garden. For a couple of years in Covent? A couple of years, yeah. In the West Piazza or? Uh, inside Pitch, and I actually performed in the edges around. I think I was one of the first performers to get Magic Corner going. Right. You know? So me not and, waiting in line, finding a place. Well, you couldn't. Uh, I, I could never wait in line because I didn't have an hour show. I was frustrated, and I asked artist, the spoon guy, 
one afternoon? Where can I go where I can do, you know, 15 shows a day, 10 shows a day, and not be bothered by anybody? And he said, America. I said, where in America? He said, uh, Key West, Florida. So I said, okay. So I decided that afternoon that I'm going to move to America. And I was working for a drainage firm as a camera operator. We were putting cameras down drains to find blockages. You actually had a real job at one point. At one point, yeah, I had a real job. And uh, I told them I'm selling everything I have, you know, my flat. I got some records and record players and high-end stuff, you know, couches, futon bed. I'm selling everything. So all the performers come around and bought all my crap, all my stuff, my magic books, magic collection. I just sold everything. Complete liquidation. Completely. Got rid of it all and then decided to go to America. I went to get a B1 visa for America. And they asked me how long I'm going to stay for. And I said, well, I want to stay for a couple of weeks. I want to go on holiday. They said, well, you need cash. So I went back to the drainage firm who I was working for. It was called CAD, C-A-D, Clear All Drains. And the guys there were London guys, great guys. And they gave me like two grand in cash to go to the embassy. And said, this is what I'm taking with me for holiday. They wanted to see the cash. They stamped me a B1. And then uh, took I, the cash back to your friends. Took it back to my friends. <laughs> it was a trust thing back then. Yeah, you didn't mess with these London boys. You know? <laughs> so and then uh, I got on a flight. I told my parents that I'm moving to America, and I didn't have hardly any money because I was drinking beer and partying back then, and you know, but I sold, liquidated my stuff. I spent all the money. I had like a hundred, two hundred dollars on me when you were when I went across there. But I made the mistake of buying a one-way ticket because I wasn't sure when I was going to come back. And that was a big mistake as far as immigration is concerned. Right. They wanted to see my return date, and I didn't have one. And they said, how come you don't have a return date? This is an immigration. I said, because I don't know when I'm going to come back. I want to see a bit of America. You know, I got some uh, ground bus tickets. And they said, who are you staying with? Where's your hostel, hotel? Yeah. I said, no, I'm staying with a guy called Gregory Fleeman. And he said, does he know you're coming? And I said, well... No, but my friend Ardis had given me his number, and he said, if I ever need someone to stay, this guy would lend me a bed, you know? Right. He said, so if we call him now, is he expecting you? I said, well, not really. You know, I'm going to call him on the blue. And they said, this doesn't sound right, this story. You know, you're going to have to go and see another examiner. So I was in there for about six hours. Oh, man. You know? And uh, it was really frustrating because I felt that they weren't going to let me in. And I've just told everybody in England, I've sold everything. My apartment, my flat's gone. Yeah. i got nowhere to go back to. I didn't want to go back to my parents, obviously, you know. You put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, and I was literally in tears, you know. I've, I've 21, 22 at this point? Yeah, yeah, 21, 22. I said, I've got to get in this country. I've got to get to America. I just have to. You know, and they're coming, well, we've spoke to another examiner, we're going to turf you away on another flight, we're going to send you back, because we don't believe your story. I said, look, I can't believe this. And luckily, I had a letter from Bradley Rayner, who was the owner of CAD, Clear All Drains Company. He had given me a letter saying that my job is always open, go have a good time on holiday, and if you ever get stuck, we'll send you some more money. And I forgot that he typed that, that letter for me, because he had told me that immigration can be a bit of a problem. We have to give you a sending off letter. Right. And that is what he had. And they searched me, and they pulled out this letter, and they read it. They said, oh, so you're really telling the truth? I said, yeah. I said, okay, you can go. And I was like, oh, my God, that letter saved my ass. <sighs> but this said, isn't the first time you've had issues with immigration. No, this is, this is eight years later. I mean, after Halifax, when Robert called the 
immigrate. Long story. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> it's like immigration <laughs> likes you a lot. <laughs> so I got, well, and then you had it again in Windsor as well, across the border in Windsor, yeah. and like pants and the kid, yeah. <laughs> but my, it's all my own fault, you know. <laughs> you know, I got no one else to blame. <laughs> Okay, so so I get out at the hostel. No, you're flying into Orlando. Or you're flying. Into I flew into New Miami, New Jersey, oh, New York, and New I York. took a bus to Penn Station. And there was, you know, I'm only five foot seven, five foot eight. I'm not very tall. I'm quite short. Right. And Americans are really opposing to me. They're really towered above me, especially the cops, because I think they had a height minimum yeah. back then, and the cops were massive. And I had these two suitcases. <laughs> I didn't know a soul. 22 years old, walking into a brand new country. No idea. Well, it, was, it was bloody freezing, and I wanted to go to work. What month is this? That you November. Okay. Yeah. And I wanted to go to work, and I didn't know where to go. I had no connections, and I was saying, excuse me, sir. He goes, yes. And he was just right, really aggressive with his, like, a sergeant in the military. Yes, sir. I go, where can I get a hotel? And he goes, nine blocks down there. YMCA, boy. And I thought, what the fuck did he say? You know, it's like, really intimidating. So... I ended up checking into YMCA and he wanted like $70 or it might have been $30. I can't remember. It was quite a bit of money, you know. Compared to what you had. So I paid it. I put my bags in there and I looked down the hall. It was just a long hallway with rooms. And rooms. Rooms. It was kind of the first time I really stayed in an atmosphere like this because, you know, I had friends and places to stay in Europe and England. Sure. This is, I was traveling, you know, I was like, well, so I go, I need to go get a drink to wind down, you know. Or the excitement. Sure. So I was in immigration. I need to go get a beer. So I went down to this little place down the stairs across the street. There was a little diner, Italian diner. You know, they had like boxing, memorabilia, typical American diner. I sure, loved sure. it. And I sat at the bar and a woman had come over and asked me what I wanted. And I asked for a beer. She brought me a beer. And I said, excuse me, can you use a phone? I got this number to call. His name's Gregory Fleeman. He doesn't unconscious. She goes, hold it, I'll do it for you. Because I was trying to use the phone box. I didn't know you needed quarters. They didn't have phone cards. Right. Everything was really foreign to me. Nobody explained how you go about doing things, you know. You show up completely unaware of everything. It's like a new planet. It's a new planet. So she went down to the end of the bar, got the phone, and she had one of those... Co- Cables, yeah, yeah. That come all the way across the bar. It's like 12 foot. 12 foot of screen cable. Yeah, yeah. And she, she dialed the number. She lost the number. She went back to the phone, dialed the number... And the phone rang, and he goes, hello. I said, hi, this is uh, Gazzo, because I was Gary Osborne, but I just changed my name to Gazzo back then, you know. It was Iris that helped me with that name, by the way. And I said, um, my name's Gazzo. And he, he goes, who? I go, Gazzo. I said, my friend, Artis. Artis, that bastard owes me money. Where is he? <laughs> oh, shit, this is a good start. <laughs> you know? And this is like 11 o'clock at night, you know. I figured New Yorkers would be up like Londoners would, right, so, right, right. you know. I didn't want to, like, get him out of bed, you know. I thought he's been short with me because of it's late I just took that chance and he said where are you I said I'm at the YMCA he goes where and I told him the address and he goes okay I can't see you right now because I'm in the middle of writing a script I'll talk to you another time give me a call tomorrow I go bye thanks put the phone down so he's he's in New York he's in New York in Manhattan and I was like oh god what do I do now I don't know anyone so I'm just a bit jet-lagged, but I'm sort of over the excitement. It's trying to wake up from the excitement. Yeah. Being in America, I'm in America, that was the main thing. But it was raining and cold, and I had no idea of the weather of America. I just see movies, but they're all from California, which is a different 
completely different environment from environment, weather. So I'm thinking America's like California all over, but it isn't. It's, I'm in New York and it's November and it's Macy Parade is coming in a few days and it's cold. And so I go, I need to get to Florida, to Key West, but I go in the morning. I have a ground bus to go in the morning. So I sort of finish my drink, say thanks to the, the woman bar lady, yeah, yeah. and I go back to the YMCA and there's not a soul in this car- passage where it's like a hospital, there's no one in the corridors. So I go in the room, lock the door, just paranoid, you know, of being mugged because New York didn't have a good reputation back then. Sure. It was, everyone was begging with styrofoam cups. I remember walking from the bar back to the hospital and 20 people had come up to me asking me for money. And I thought, we didn't get that in London. It was really like, whoa, what an atmosphere. Yeah, it was, it was horrible. So I go back to the uh, YMCA. YMCA. I sit in, on my bed and just lean against the wall and go, oh, I just got to sleep. So I lay down on the bed. And I had my uh, cassette player with headphones, you know. Back then we had Walkman, Walkman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I was front seat, and I hear a knock on the door. And it woke me up, it weirded me out, because it was like, who's knocking on my door? It was like one o'clock in the morning, you know. I opened the door, and I looked down, there's not a soul in the corridor. I think, that's weird. Who the hell knows me in this place? Right. I looked down, there's a piece of paper under the door slot. It'd come under the door. I pick it up saying, somebody wants to meet you downstairs. And I'm thinking, fuck, immigration's at me now. I'm thinking the worst. I said, Jesus Christ, they followed me here. They don't believe my story. <laughs> so do I go downstairs or do I stay in the room? They know I'm here. You know, I've got lockpicks on me. I think I could go unlock another, another door. door. I don't want to find you. And I'm thinking, no, I could do this, you know. But I thought, I better not get in trouble right now in America. So I just go downstairs. I go downstairs and no one in the thing, the guy in the office is typing away something. And the guy stood by the door, the exit sign to the door, and he goes, Gazzo? He goes, Gregory Fleeman. He put my hand out, a really nice handshake. He goes, I apologise to you. I said, what? He goes, get your stuff, come on, come on with me. And I go, well, I've just got my stuff in the room. He goes, go get your stuff, I'll get your money back for the room. I was like, how's he going to do that? So I go get my stuff, I come back down. He's got your money back. He's got my money back, my $30 or $70 for the night, and I was quite chuffed about that. And he says, you're staying with me. And that made me feel better because it's like one in the morning and now I've got someone to talk to. And, and he said, as we get in a cab to his place where he stays, he said, look, I'm sorry, I have a partner. We're writing a screenplay and uh, we're finalizing it. We're putting it together. We're submitting it tomorrow to Los Angeles. So we got to finish it tonight. And I'm sorry, I was a bit short with you. And my partner said, look, how would you like it if you went to England and you didn't know anybody and blah, blah, blah. So he talked me into coming to pick you up. So that's why I'm here. And I said, oh, thanks. He said, so I apologize. I said, no apology. No, sorry. I was just, uh, in fact, I can talk to somebody now, you know. You have a connection. I have a connection and things start to, to roll to roll from that day on. And uh, so we go back to his place. He said, what's your story? And I tell him, you know, I said, I met artists. And he said, I used to be a busker. I used to be a guitar player here. That's why I met artists in Manhattan, in Washington Square Park. He'd come by playing spoons. He stayed with me a few days and he left. I loaned him some money. I never see him again. I heard he went to England. I don't really know artists that well. I was just a fellow traveler, performer, and that's where he stayed with me. He said, what's your plans? I said, well, I want to go to Key West. And he said, well, you should fly. I said, no, I don't want to fly. I want to take a bus down. I want to see America. He said, okay, yeah, no problem. Do what you want, you know. How many hours? It was four days, like this. Biggest mistake of my life. <laughs> I'm going down to Baltimore, I go from New York, Baltimore, to Virginia, Virginia to North Carolina, South Carolina, 
Atlanta, and it takes like three days to get there. And yeah. I'm like, when do we get to Key West to the drive? He goes, oh, about the 5th. I go, what, 5? What do you mean 5th? He goes, the 5th of this month. Month. I'm like, 5th of December. And I go, Jesus, how many days is it then? He goes, it's three or four days to get to Key West. I said, Jesus, where the fuck am I going? Four days on a bus? Because in England, you, you're in Scotland and back in a day. Right. Seven hours there, seven hours back. It's like, it's, but three days drive? Completely different. Um, I'm just, I can't fathom it. Your head is spinning. Oh, my head is spinning. And as I'm going down to Key West, it's a one road. There's one road in, one road out. And I saw billboards mm-hmm. on the way down, you know. Drink at Sloppy Joe's, eat breakfast at the pier house and all this. And there's just nothing either side. It's just water. And I'm going there. And it's, I just passed Miami. And I'm getting down to the Keys. And he said, we're six hours drive to Key West from Miami. And I'm going, like, there's nothing here. I've got no money. I'm going down. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've made a huge mistake. You know? So I finally get down to Key West. And it was like paradise. But I didn't know if I could perform there or not. I only heard that I could. I didn't know if I could. Mm. So I get there, and uh, there's a Cuban place that wasn't quite open. I go in there, and I said, can I have a coffee, mate? He said, yeah, I sit down. And she's got your accent's really cute. Where are you from? I said, England. Anyway, we start talking. It's a Cuban lady. I sit down and drink my coffee. And a guy comes in with uh, a beret, French beret, and feathered earrings, tattoos on his neck, you know. And he starts talking in London accents. His name was Chris. And she said, oh, you're English too. The guy behind you is English. He turned around and he had, like, bleached hair. He was older than me by about four or five years. He goes, oh, I just come back from San Francisco. I go, here we go, because I heard Key West was gay. But you're, at this point, you're, like, early 20s and... I was 22. Fighting form, looking yeah. good. Yeah, I was... Oh, yeah. You would have been a catch. <laughs> no, you know, I was intimidated by a lot of things, you know. And he goes, where are you staying? I said, I'm staying at a hotel. I'm actually a street performer. And he goes, where? Covent Garden? I goes, yeah. And I figured, you know, this guy is probably not gay. I hope he's not. And he can, you know, help me find some direction. He said, we're going to have to find somewhere to stay. My friend Marty is an English guy. You can stay with him. I'll ask him. We're staying in his place. There's a guy called Pedro, who's a drummer. Mm. He said, when he moves out, we're going to move in. And then we're staying in our van. You can have my van, which is outside. We can plug in with a few fans. It's hot, but you can stay in the van. But Marley, we'll have to click with Marley. And I'm thinking, well, he's got a wife, this guy, and he's going to help me out. So I ended up having a drinking buddy from England. We go out and we become really close friends years later. But I had somebody I can communicate with. And Marty was a, a guy that was on the run from Kentucky who had a record business. Tax people got hold of him, so he went to Key West. <laughs> to and set up, yeah, to escape. And a lot of people would uh, escape and evasion people down there, you know. So You're Mar- hanging out with a really good crew then. Yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was my kind of people. Yeah. And I was, yeah, I was quite happy. So I stayed with Marty. Uh, but prior to that, I meet Will Soto. And Will Soto was going down... Uh, trying to get money for a busker's festival he wanted to produce next the following year. And he was going down to businesses, and Chris said, have you met Will Soto? I said, no. He said, well, that's him there on the bike. He's going down to set up for Mallory. They get there at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock to line up for this sunset. Right. And uh, he said, I'll introduce you. We could walk across the road. He said, hey, Will. And he goes, how you doing? Will turned around and shook my hand. And I said, I'm a performer from England. And he said, we'll show up tonight. We'll get you a pitch. And there you just said that you didn't like draw a key like they do now. You just go and find a location and you go to work. And I ended up 
getting there about six o'clock and it was pissing with rain pouring with rain I'm like it's all I need I need to make money right and it's raining right and there's a guy called Billy Eagle he's a guitarist he shows up to work it and he goes you alright I goes yeah I just wanted to work tonight he goes oh don't worry we'll be working I said there's no one here and he goes yeah because it's raining I said yeah but this is, this is a sunset celebration he goes yeah but the sun's not for another couple of hours but they will be here believe me and I go okay so I figured well I'll just sit out and it stopped raining and then 10,000 people show up <clears throat> I go to work and I make like $250 in a matter of like an hour and I'm like this is paradise for me you made it oh I made it and then uh Cyrus comes down and he just split up from Locomotion Circus Cyrus right. uh, picked a new partner it was Bertie yeah. McLean Bertie had showed up early because he was going to do a college tour with Cyrus and they had an argument so Bertie left uh, wherever he was staying I think California he was with Jeff Mason and one man band and he flew early to Key West and that's how I ended up meeting Bertie so Bertie was there and he thought I was a Cellini clone because Cellini was teaching performers back then I'd never met Cellini so Buddy walked away from me and then he ended up seeing me in the bar and I'm drinking, we start talking and he said, what do you do? I said, well, I do magic. He said, yeah, I walked away because you're a Cellini client. I said, I haven't met Cellini, but I keep hearing about him. I'd like to meet him. He goes, he's a friend of mine. I said, yeah, I'd like to meet Jim. And he said, well, he never comes to Key West, but I have a partner, Cyrus. We're going to go to Coconut Grove after Christmas for the arts festival and you can come along. Mm-hmm. And there was, uh, who was there? Polaris was there, Carl Mellish, who died. They're all dropping around me, by the way, David. I'm Every, you're the only one left. All these guys I'm mentioning, they've all sort of they're, perished, they're, they're demise. Well, in that generation of reformer, I mean, that's a, at least two generations ago. Not three, yeah, three point. generations ago. Three yeah. generations ago. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was the people I met. And me and Bert become really close friends. I mean, he's been my best buddy forever. From this point on, you're basically staying in the United States. Oh, I don't want to ever go back to England. All my friends become American. And Cyrus... And Birdie were partners, and Cyrus, you know, he's very tenacious, and he, he saw me as a commodity, so he tried to book me in the college market. Right. And he said, we actually perform in Boston every summer. Why don't you come up to Boston? And so this is November, you get to Key West, you stay in Key West over the winter? Yeah, I Birdie? stayed there till about April, and I was landing money left, right, and I worked every night, and I was making a killing more than most of them, because I would do four or five shows a night. Yeah, you're a worker. So I had three hours to work, maybe two hours to work. So I made, you know, we shouldn't talk about money, but I was making good money. And when the weather breaks in New England area, they go up to Boston. And I took it to Boston. My money tripled there. Right. I was making... You were one of the first people who started working a week in Fingerhall. In Fingerhall. Because everyone, they always work weekends. weekends. Yeah. So what was that? I mean, you just wanted to work every day? I wanted to work. I got a place in the north end of Boston. I I just a quick question for you. So you're doing Florida in the winter, you're doing Boston Boston in the the summer, summer. and this is early 80s? Early Early 80s, 80s, well early. Yeah, so this became the pattern? Every winter I'd go to Key West. And every summer you'd stay in Boston? Back and forth, back back and and forth, forth, and back and forth. For about 10 years. Now, had you even heard or been exposed to San Francisco at this point? Yeah, because that is... Birdie actually got invited to go out to San Francisco, and that is when he told me about Amazing Jonathan was there and Michael Davis. Right. Anytime Birdie told me about a great performer, I knew that they were great because Birdie had a good eye for Ah, oh, right, for who's, who had <coughs> the who talent. Was, who had the talent, and Birdie immediately said Michael Davis and Amazing Jonathan. Huh. So I knew those two performers I had to look out for. Right. You're really, for 10 years... 
when you're first in the United States, your show is just getting tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter yeah. and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. But to an American audience, I did my show to an American audience because I knew that's the rest of my performing time would be in America. I don't ever want to go back to England. So I stopped doing the English style and went become Well, the, the English accent and the cheekiness and you're doing a great show. You've got a foreign accent, which gives you a certain mystique mm. and appeal you're getting better and better and better and then all of a sudden you're hitting these festivals you do Dick Finkel's festival yeah I did Dick Finkel's the first one and that was like 85 wasn't it yeah 85 86 yeah. around that I yeah. did Dick Finkel's and that was uh, who was the guy Al Krulik Al Shakespeare Al, I said Al Krulik Al Shakespeare who went to uh, Disney World he was there and there was uh, Philip Petit was there wasn't he yeah the very first one yeah but prior to that, I got invited to the Renaissance Circuit. I did the Renaissance Circuit in America. There was a guy called John Mills that hired me to do Chicago and California. Mm -hmm. So I did that the first couple of years. That was before Halifax. I met you in 88. Halifax 88 was the second year. The first time I got invited was Dale Thompson sent out an application. He sent one to me and one to Birdie. And Mickey ripped him up because he didn't want us going because he didn't want competition. Right. So Mickey was performing in Boston at this time too? Yeah, well I met Mickey in Key West. Okay. He had hitchhiked down to Key West and he wanted to learn, so I took him under my wing and made him into a monster, performing monster, because Mickey ended up becoming a very good performer. Rock solid. Yeah. So you do Halifax. Yeah. And then Fredericton. Fredericton. There was one in Ottawa that first year too. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm building a reputation up for being a money man, you know, making big money, you yeah. know. But also I built my reputation up through word of mouth people saying that this guy's got a great show and I knew I had a great show but like you're saying I had the formula I had the package the voice the patter the English accent and the attire the gypsy attire and it, I become a very unique performer yeah. very early on in my career and I hit a formula that put me on a certain echelon you know yeah, yeah, not being conceited or anything but I knew I had a formula that worked and I knew that it wasn't flavour of the month it was a classic style of performing I knew that but it was beyond just having the package you had the work ethic behind it well you need to work hard yeah, yeah. and you, you were never scared of going out and doing more shows than anybody else well I'll tell you what it was David is because I knew it wouldn't last I knew that you're not going to be able to do this forever and I knew very early on like I met Birdie in his prime and he was complaining about his knees right he said I used to be a trampolinist in the circus and I used to land on mats for a dismount and he said my knees are going so I knew that I picked a a, a career a career that wouldn't damage me the magic's know? not going to break your body no it's effortless for me so but when I look on performers like Robert Nelson this is later in the years when I met Robert but when I look on performers like Cyrus and Jean-Michel when they're jumping down off these unicycles I said their knees are going to go so mm. it's short lived you know like the English gents you know they're one of the best acts in the world but it's short lived they can't he can't keep lifting his partner like that. It will come to an end one day. Mm -hmm. With magic, it never comes to an end. You can perform until you're 80. As long as you're... As long as you're able, right. yeah. It's not an illness that will bring you down. Yeah, you're living these days, but it's yeah. not stopping you at all. Not stopping me at all, no. So, we're late 80s, early 90s. When was it that the stroke hit? The stroke hit on the day Nicole Simpson got killed, which was 93. Okay. 94, yeah. 93. Got this it. is at your prime, too. Like, you're at your, your oh, absolute I was, peak. I was just this close to getting a TV show in Hollywood. And you get hit by a stroke. I get hit by a stroke. And I couldn't make the meeting with the NBC people. Do you know what caused it? 
they couldn't find any damage to me. They found a blockage in my neck uh-huh. and the arteries. And how did that affect your ability to do magic, your ability oh, to... Oh, it just affected me mentally, physically, and emotionally. What happened? Describe exactly what happened to your body. Uh, it just broke down. I had no strength to do walk. Right side, left side? Left side stroke, right side brain. So they say, but they never found any symptoms for a blockage. It moved on. So I was actually in the Caesar Sinai Hospital in Hollywood, and uh, they wanted payment for the bed, and I didn't have the payment, you know. I mean, I did, but I didn't want to give them 30 grand for this CAT scan, the ultrasound, the... uh, Spinal tap. They wanted payment for all this. Right. So they were reluctant to do any tests on me because I didn't have payment, but they knew I was inhaled and they knew that something needed to be done. They had to find a blockage just in case it was occurring again. And they did the test. They come in, they said, we can't find the blockage. So as far as we're concerned, there's nothing wrong with you. I go, I beg your pardon? They said, well, the, there's no sign of a stroke. There's no sign of a blockage. You have a problem with your heart pumping blood and it's caused a severe stroke but we can't find any sign of it so they asked me what drugs I've been taking and I said I don't take drugs I don't do drugs and they said we kind of don't believe you I said well then what do you want me to do I mean there's nothing like you're the experts they had to assess the stroke to something and they keened it to uh, a stroke probably were you living in California I was living in California yeah Robert Nelson had said things about being around you at this time. He was not around me at that time. Not at all? Not at all. Robert takes credit for lifting me off the beach in Venice and taking me to the hospital. It's completely fabricated. He had nothing to do with it. Robert didn't see me till about a month and a half afterwards. Okay. It was my wife that called Robert and said, how come you haven't been around to see Gazzo, you know? And he said, I'm embarrassed to come around. She said, well, I think you should come around because he needs somebody that... Talk to. Talk to. So he'd come round and he was quite embarrassed for me, you know. So he decided to get me out of the house. He asked if I'd been out. I said, no, no, I can't get out. I'm house ridden. And he said, well, I'll take you out. And he took me to see uh, Dana Smith, Walter Woodhead, and... Uh, they were all out in L.A.? They were doing uh, for Universal Studios. Citywalk. The yeah, Citywalk Festival. They were doing a festival there. So Robert had taken me in there to meet them, and they are all embarrassed. They didn't know what to say to me. Well, what do you say? I mean, what do you say when what you, you say somebody? to somebody? Yeah. Did that make you angrier? For Robert, yeah, because I didn't want to go meet anybody. I basically wanted to just go to Third Street Promenade and sit by the beach, you know? I was his puppet for a while. Right. Because Robert, you know, he's got one up on me. Not anymore. Not anymore, no. Because he died. He's dead, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, he's dead. You know he died of cancer. He, what, he died of cancer? Yeah, he died of cancer. He really did? He really died of cancer. He died of cancer. How many times do you need me to say it? Well, I'd just like to hear it. So bad and so wrong. <laughs> It'd be the first to laugh at that one. Yeah, yeah, he had a really great streety edge to what he did. He was actually one of the only performers that really made me laugh. Like, Walter Wood had made me laugh. Right. When they had the drummer with them. Walter Woodhead and Whitlow. Whitlow, yeah. Yeah, that yeah, was that, a magical That was a magic, magic show. That made me laugh, but Robert was the one that made me laugh. There were some great showdowns between the two of you, too, weren't there? Me and Robert. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we loved each other. But uh, but there were like there were moments when there was, like, uh, he described you guys going head-to-head and Halifax one year trying to one-up each other with a different insult. One, yeah, tuck, tuck, yeah. Tuck, 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 he beat me that day. <laughs> he, I give him the crown that day. Not every day. <laughs> but that day he had it. Yeah, he beat me. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, he's one of the guys I miss in our family, you know. He's the one we all saw. I honestly don't think the industry has been the same since he died. But he had left the fold a bit. Not really. He was always in the back. I mean, you helped him come into it again. And I think Robert fed off our energy. Right. Yeah, he really did. And when that got taken away from him, that's what I think killed him. That's what can- our cancer set in his body. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Anyway, um, you had your stroke. And then you were bedridden for how long? About two years. And how did you get back in? It was actually Johnny Fox. He convinced me to come back to Maryland. He said, I've spoke with the owners. They're going to hire you for a season, you know, give you a chance. And I said, Johnny, I hadn't done the work for two years. And he says, just come out there. Just do your thing. You know, you get money. So I did. First show is? Horrible. Second show is? Horrible. Third show? Well, the first day I had like four shows and they were horrible. Then the, the Sunday come and Johnny gave me a pet talk and said, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just get out there and do your thing. You know, you're still great. But I knew I wasn't. I knew I'd lost all my abilities, you know. So you, were your manipulations and everything else oh, compromised? Yes, everything was finished. Horrible. So how did you, just through repetition, that skill came back? Rehabilitation. I did it myself. I really believe that the body can heal itself, you know. Right. And uh, was that the same for your comedy and your timing as well, that it was simply by repetition? I don't think I ever lost my comedy timing. I forgot lines. I forgot bits. I have a, an index of jokes in my head, and I can rattle out a joke or a bit at any given moment. Right. But I lost the ability to do that from my stroke, so I had to rethink it all. Right. Yeah, I lost my memory. I can't play chess anymore. I used to be a good chess player. I just can't remember the moves anymore. So from Maryland, it built up. You got your confidence back through that one gig, and then did it help you to approach people to do other jobs after that? Because like, that's prime time for the festival circuit, too, because the festivals had really taken off by mid-90s. Yeah. And you were in demand. You had a reputation. You had everything else. I mean, people were a little nervous. Yeah, well, they were, after my stroke, I lost the ability to read the audiences properly, uh-huh. you know. And that's understandable, you know. I wasn't myself. I was kind of an angry performer because of what had happened to me and I was taken out on my audiences right. you know I shouldn't have done but I just couldn't help it right I was struggling a struggling performer so that anger was angry at what had happened to you yes trying to be funny and it wasn't coming about being funny because I lost the ability to read the audience and the situation because the bits I was doing wasn't fitting in the right place I remember seeing you that 88 year in Halifax and in Fredericton and uh in Ottawa, where it was effortless. Mm. It flowed. As soon as you stepped out on stage, it was crafting the shape of this audience that you wanted and really bringing them to a conclusion where they desperately wanted to give you all their money. Yeah. And afterwards, it felt more like it was a puzzle, that you were putting the pieces in place, yeah. but it was like you were deliberately putting the pieces in place as opposed to oozing, flowing from you. So I was making mistakes as a performer, but it's still good because I've developed into a different style of performing now, and it's helped me. It's made you evolve. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it has. But for the first 10 years, it was horrible because I rubbed people the wrong way. I alienated a lot of people. People that didn't really know me, you know. Right. During this time where you're learning to do things again, you're also teaching other people, right? Well, I went to lecture on magic. Basically, I was hoping more I could just do more talks than actually performing because I lost the ability to perform so I needed some form of income so I went and sold your DVD right? yeah I did my DVD to a 
penguin company and uh, they pay me well more than most I'm very happy with the payment uh, and it spawned a lot of these performers that you see now call them gazoclones or gazonites or whatever you call them um, they're out there <laughs> alright let's talk about theft yeah do you see people doing your show that you've never seen before in your life yeah you walk up and you see yeah loads loads hundreds of them all over the world now well, how does that make you feel well, they're not putting money in my pocket, so it doesn't make me feel good about it. I don't know how they can sleep at night, though, knowing that it's basically a stolen show. Yeah, it doesn't make me feel good, but there's nothing I can do about it. It's just the way things are today, isn't it? With YouTube and, you know, you can access anything on YouTube. What do you say to people who say that you've got stuff in your show that you've stolen? I haven't stolen anything in my show. Ever? Ever. Nothing. If I see a bit in an old TV show, right, I will change it around so it suits me today. Right. But I've never seen a performer do something and then say that's in my show next day. No. I don't do other people's routines. If a, a magician's famous for a routine or a bit mm. or a segment in a show and it would suit me, I would ask that magician rather than just take it, I would say, do you mind if I change that bit around? Can I use that bit and change it around? And if they said no, I'd rather If do they it. say no, then I don't do it. Right. There's a lot of stuff in Bill Ferguson's show that I like. I and was, he's not performing anymore. No, no. But there's a lot of bits in Bill Ferguson's show that I like, but I would never do them. In actual fact, I do a bit in my show, and another magician in Bath said, you should do this bit. So I start to do that, and then someone said in Glastonbury, you're doing Bill Ferguson's bit. So I stopped doing it immediately. I didn't know where it came from. Right. Yeah, I would not do other people's stuff. Now, here's a question. There's a book written about one-liners... Yes. ...that you wrote? No, I didn't write it. I put it together. Okay. I got an editor to put all these lines that are in my head over the years I've heard together, and I tried to give credit to that person who wrote it. Or where you had heard it. Or where I heard it first. Whoever I heard it come from first, I try to give them credit. Whether they come from that person or not, I don't know. Do you think that by publishing a book like that, you're actually arming people with ammunition to steal material? No, because there's thousands of books out there in the library that you can go and get, like insult books, things to say at a meeting. There's lots of books out there. I just made it easier for the street performer. And what I tried to do is give credit to everybody, but unfortunately, it's impossible. What, what happens when somebody buys your book? Somebody buys your book, they're a new performer, they see these lines, they've never met the performer or seen their delivery that you know, you're crediting, and they just go, oh, that's a good line that I'm going to use. Immediately they put it in their show. Immediately they have success with it. Is that stealing, in your opinion? It's hard to say, isn't it? Because what's out in public domain... You help make it public domain if you put it in a book. Well, yes, I have. I've, what I've done is... I'm a teacher in so many ways, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm a good influence. I try to be a good influence on a lot of performers. So I did try... There was a lot of arguments of where these bits... Me and Robert would feud all the time about a certain line or a bit. This is why me and Robert fell out, because he had said that Gazzo stole my one-line book. Mm -hmm. I said, Robert, I'm what... He heard it, I'm writing a one-line book. And he said, can I help contribute? I said, yeah, send me what you have. And uh, I took a lot from Jerry Rowan as well. And we'll I'll piece them together, I try and give credit. And Robert sent me lines that there's only about 15 in there. There weren't very many. And he was trying to sell that on performance.net. You send him $10, he'll send you some lines. 
so he sent me that pamphlet and I think I've still got it it's not very many in there a lot of them were just crap they weren't even worth putting in the book but some of them were but they were um, credited to certain performers that I knew where they come from mm. you know Robert had tried to do the same thing but I did a better job in the early days in computers they had this thing called page maker and I was trying to write a book on all the lines that I had heard then I yeah. realized along the way, you can't just do that. Not only do you have to attribute it to the artist, but right. you're basically taking their material and making money off of their yeah. stuff. Yeah, I mean, so, not, nothing good could come from publishing. No, uh, so I would never think of publishing it. Theft is a difficult subject. It well, it is, and that's yeah. why I'm asking you, because I'm trying to draw the lines. I'm saying if you write a book and somebody takes a line out of the book that is credited to somebody else then, in essence, they're stealing the line from Michael Davis, let's say, as an example. Well, Michael Davis performed on Johnny Carson, and every performer and their mother were performing Michael Davis's bits. Because they'd seen That's him on theft. TV. That's theft. One of my more embarrassing moments where I was subject to stealing somebody else's line, I saw Michael Davis juggle fire one night, and now I'm going to do this with my eyes closed. And he started juggling and blinking his eyes like he was peeking really badly. And it was very, very funny. And I found myself on stage doing that routine. Only tried it once. And he happened to be right there in the audience watching. Right. And he walks up to me. And he didn't even have to say a word. I was so embarrassed. I never <laughs> did it again. But uh, it was a good lesson to learn that don't yeah, take yeah. from a fellow performer. Okay, now here's the next question. And this is simply because it's a very important topic that people need to know about and, and understand. If you create a book, did you ask all the performers whose lines you put into that book whether it would be okay to put their line into a book? But those, those Did you ask? No, because those lines have been out there for hundreds of years. But there are lines that are new lines that I try to credit with people that have hearing but a lot of those lines in the books are like my dad used to use them right. you know right but it's a blurred line isn't it it's to draw the parallel in that avenue it's tough it's tough to uh... here's another great example have you seen Clark McFarlane's Mario Queen of the Circus yes great performance fantastic show yeah. one of my favorite shows without question without just solid yeah. solid solid, solid yeah. he's like using music that is written by somebody else like where do you draw the line he's doing something so fun and delightful for his audience but he's borrowed from Queen, he's taken his experience from Circus, he's taken his experience from all these different things and mashed them together. So it's that mashup, that creation of different influences into something other than, because it's not Queen that he does. No, he's taken bits, right? Taken. Taken bits from everybody and then constructed something. Well, okay, borrowed bits. Let's say he's borrowed bits and put them into a a formula that works. Now that formula has become his formula and the way he's built those bits in that pacing of his show yeah. to get that show tight. That's his show and we all know that's his show. So if somebody else takes those bits, the same bits, and constructs them in a different formula, it's not stealing. You see what I mean? But if they take Clark's formula and does the show exactly like Clark, then that's stealing from Clark. But then the, the performer stole from Clark can justify and say, well, Clark got it from this and that and that. Right. So it's okay to do that, which is not. That's stealing. Clark borrowed. That's different. You see what I mean? You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Robert yeah, borrowed I'm, bits. I'm, I'm, I've borrowed bits. 
we're all influenced by something. We are. Yeah, we all need to start in life, yeah. And we take those influences, and then it's our job as performers to construct something Yes. That is true to who we are as and individuals. And put it together so it's your show that makes it unique. Right. But where do you draw the line? I know, David, it's difficult. I'm not the person to ask, really. Although I've seen everything that's out there, everybody, and I've seen great shows. And I will walk away from the performer if I know that he's doing a piece that's not his. I just, I ain't got time for it. I right. walk away. Right. Well, I think it's, you're cheating yourself. And you're cheating your audience because when you steal something from somebody else, you're not actually giving the audience a piece of yourself. No. You know, they're not going to be remembered. They perform in this era and they make good money off my sure. formula. But... David brought anything new to the circle? Nothing new to it. What do you feel he brought that was new to the circle? Hard work and keeping my show tight. And I know where... I can stretch it and say, right, this is my environment. But if you take me out of the environment and put me in an environment that I wouldn't do so good, then you'll see me not do very good, you know? Well, let's talk about an environment where you didn't do very well. I've never found that environment. I've I, always I think, done well. I think when you're walking across borders occasionally... No, that's the different... Yeah. <laughs> I've had a lot of unlucky situations. Well, I know two off the top of my head. I mean, you talked about one at the beginning when we were talking about coming into the United States for the first time, but then... Leaving Halifax with excessive amounts of money. $18,000, yeah. And they confiscated 10000 of it. What? Yeah, they confiscated 10000 And I heard, I don't know if it's true, that Robert had called immigration for a gag. Tell the story from the beginning. Well, I made $18,000. The average hat back then was about $100 because I was performing with Cyrus and Birdie on a weekend to make, you know, $75 hat, which I thought was amazing. Mm -hmm. And then Cyrus and Bernie would go out and do a $100 hat. And I was like, oh my God, you know, when can I do a $100 hat? It's like a dream of a $100 hat. How can you do that? It's impossible. How can you? It's impossible. Right. So we went to Halifax and the schedule was like in Argyle Street, in the street on the bars, and it was in the park and down by the waterfront. Yeah. And there were locations where Walter Woodhead went across to Dartmouth. Right. Actually, I renegated. Daryl Thompson told me to go here, here, and here. But I didn't do those locations because I wanted to be in the waterfront. That's where the people were. But not knowing the people were all over the city. They were everywhere. They were everywhere. So I reluctantly said, I don't want to do these locations. And Daryl goes, well, you just do what you want because you always do. I said, thanks. And I went and did Mickey. We went behind the Sheridan on that hill. Yep. You know, I just worked everywhere I could and made money. How many shows a day? Oh, I do 15 solid shows back then but that's nothing I do 30 now and I remember Robert had said he had a location in Argyle Street which is by a church right. I remember it because we were staying in a hostel we walked down there to go to the waterfront and we go past this Argyle Street there was a church it was a wall yeah. on the corner and Robert goes I'm here for the rest of the afternoon I go oh good luck Robert and we go go to the waterfront and then we're all in the green room and uh, Robert comes in with his bag and he's smiling like Robert smiled, you know, and he's really chuffed. I go, you're smiling, but he goes, I just made a big hat. I go, how much? He goes, 405. My jaw hit the ground. I said, that's the biggest hat I've ever heard of. And that was a colossal hat for performers back then. Yeah. 100 was the average. And when he come back and said 405, it was a boastful figure. And it was so outlandish. It was like 
That's impossible. It's impossible. But it was the truth. And other people started to make big hats around that time. And that was like the first or second day of the festival. Yeah. That was really the turning point. Right that was, then. Yeah, that was... The, do you remember that when he said 405? I remember the figure. And I was used to $100 hats. 120 was a massive hat for Birdie and Cyrus. Right. And then 405. And then Wado Wood had come back from Dartmouth two days later and said they did a $600 hat and I just go Jesus Christ I was going to go on the ferry and go to Dartmouth but I didn't go to Dartmouth and I didn't go to Argyle Street but there were performers all over the city making massive hats you know I made you know thousand a day it was 18 days back then the festival so I made a thousand a day but it rained for two days but they give me third place prize money which was like three thousand dollars which puts my money up to eighteen thousand dollars no I made twenty two thousand Canadian I got eighteen thousand American dollars that's what it was and I remember bought a Jeep Wrangler a yellow Jeep Wrangler after it yeah so now I want to get back to you trying to get across the border again what happened well I went back to America but I was in America illegally I didn't have papers, right. you see. But I needed to come to this festival, Halifax, because all the big names were going there. I think there were 78 performers, right? It was insane. And I was like, oh, I need to go and meet all these peers. You know, there was... Everybody was there. Jeff Sheridan, Ray Jason, Dana Smith. There was Jerry Rowan. There was Dan Looker. There was... Oh, God, there was everybody. Who was who? And I just needed to be there, you know, because I wanted to be a big name. I'd become a big name after that event. So they started going different ways. And me and Robert were fueling each other with aggression. And that's when he called me on stage and gave me a one-on-one. I remember the one that finished it off. He goes, oh, Robert, the best part of you went down your father's leg. And he got a decent laugh. And I said, well, at least I got a father and not a hundred suspects. <laughs> and he had no idea what to say. I didn't know Robert that well at that time, but Bernie had told me about Robert because Bernie went from Boston to a festival in San Francisco. He got invited, so did Cyrus, but Cyrus never went. Right. And Bernie had come back, told me about this performer that's really hysterical, but he's an asshole. He's horrible. I go, who is he? He goes, Butterfly Man. I go, I've heard of him from years ago. So I was cautious of meeting Butterfly Man. And then Robert got invited to a festival that Walter Wood had put on. And Robert was always in my face because he, I don't know, he was intimidated by me or I was intimidated by him. So we had this... There's a friendly antagonism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is great. It's like whenever the two of you were together, you were trying to, you know, little little jabs, little... Was, jabs, yeah. You were boxing. Yeah. You were very much, you were boxing. Yeah. And he was a worthy opponent for you. Yeah, but he was a super middleweight, though. Uh, yeah, I couldn't compete with him at that time. And you were a featherweight. I was a featherweight. Yeah. Yeah. So it's slightly different class. Different class, yeah. yeah. But he had so much fun sparring with you. Yeah, he did, yeah. Okay. And uh, rightly so, and it was actually him that come to a festival in Boston, and Robert watched me do shows on a Saturday afternoon during the festival, uh-huh. and he had his hat on, but I, for some reason I knew it was him because Bernie said, so that guy with the hat on, he goes, that's uh, Robert Nelson, that's a butterfly man. So I knew, and he was watching all my shows, he just watched my shows, he sat, just stood there and, and watched all my shows. But again, I didn't know him, but he had respect for me, and I had respect for him, and Cyrus wanted to kill him at this <laughs> festival. And then Murph, Water Woodhead, was staying at the, uh, as a house they had, and they had an after party. We all went round there to do a big party, and, uh, we sat down and spoke, and I see a different side to Robert. 
but round, when he's around performers, he's a different. Yeah, he's yeah. like when he's on his own, he's really yeah. soft and he's yeah. really quiet and yeah. he's really actually very uh, or was meticulous about how he wanted to have his things in his life and. Yeah. When he's on stage, being the Butterfly Man. Well, there's two different characters. The Butterfly Man wasn't who Robert Nelson was. No, no. And they were two different things. So I sat down with him, and we had a, a really nice, long conversation. But the next time we met each other was at Halifax, a couple of years later. Yeah, Halifax. Yeah. And he'd become the Butterfly Man again. But I see the other side of him where he opened up, so I wasn't scared of him or intimidated by him. Uh, so... Back to Halifax, 88, finished the festival, 18 grand U.S., getting across the border. What happened? Well, they asked me, you've just been to a festival, haven't you? And I said, yeah. And they said, yeah, we got a phone call. I said, by who? They said, it doesn't matter. And I knew that somebody had squirted on me, and I got wraps on me with money, cash. And I, no, I had one wrap like that, one wrap like that. So one across your chest, one across and your took the belly. one like, across my belly. The guy felt it. He didn't pat me down at the front. Pat me down here. It was on like that with the strap on the back. He pat me down here and he said, take that off. And I took it off and he had 10 grand and 8 grand in there. And uh, they confiscated it. Never got it back. Never got it back. And then Robert had told William Lee, or William Lee had told me that Robert squealed on me going across the border. I remember that final morning, I'm ready to get up to go to the plane. And this street performer, a new kid, a young kid, a, a local Halifax kid, yeah. he comes running up to me as I'm going to have this final breakfast, and he goes, they got Gazo at the border. They got him at the border. Oh. And I looked at him, and I said, well, he shouldn't have fucked with me on stage last night. That's all I got to <laughs> say. And this guy looks at me like, no. So he went and told everybody that, I had notified immigration and naturalization on Gaza, but I didn't. I, yeah. I, I had never done that. It's just a spite. It was designed as a joke, but it backfired. Right. They confiscated my money, so... Not the happiest of stories. <coughs> no. But you got a cheap wrangler out of the deal. I did. It's like I got a job deep wrangler for eight grand. It's all right. Yeah. But then I was broke because I spent all my money on jeep wrangler, so I ended up... That was in August, wasn't it, Halifax? Halifax was in August, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, I worked Boston for a little bit, and then went down to Key West. Any mistakes? Have you made any mistakes over the years? Oh, yeah, loads. Loads, loads of mistakes. We all make mistakes. But my biggest mistake is uh, blowing all my money, having a good time traveling all over the world. I buy a first-class seat and live like a white man, you know? <laughs> but I never saved any money, and that's my biggest mistake. Uh, but I didn't want to buy property because I didn't want to be held down. But I just had a great time. I traveled everywhere. And I would crash festivals all over America. You know, me, Birdie, and Michael James would go everywhere. Do you think that the connections that are made in this world are deeper than regular friendships? Be it uh, animosity or respect or playful antagonism or however else you want to call it, that because we're so used to reading our audiences that the connections that we make when we're able to read each other and really find a deep connection is stronger than other friendships that most other people have? Well, there is a huge bond between street performers and in the circus family, you know, because we're all sort of circus performers, really, in however you look at it. In that circus family, we're all connected, you know. And I think that 
we also have this thing about not getting too close to each other. We don't really get too close to each other, but we do sort of hug each other when we see each other, when we leave each other. But it's still like, whoa, you know, it really is. It's still, we're still tight family, but there is sort of like, you know, like, no, you just did a show, it's my turn now, you know? There's tension. There's tension. There was harmony in Halifax. Mm. There was harmony in Dick Finkel's festival. Stuart and Andy have done Stuart, an amazing they've job. They've done a great job and bringing everybody here. And uh, the reason why there's harmony at this one is because the hat has been bought. Right, we don't have to worry about and it. And it's such a diverse group, you know. There's no repetition here. And the reason why there was harmony amongst performers in Halifax is because there was no aggression with the pitches. Right. You kept the crowds tight. There was no bleeding of amps. Mm -hmm. But amps have destroyed that today, you see. That's the problem with it. And I'm really against amps and a lot of these big festivals where you get a stage and there's, like, banners hanging up and they got speakers and they, they're so loud. They don't need to be that loud. And Well, it went from, it, like, it, we talked about it before, that the $100 hat was the goal yeah. for the longest time. And then yeah. when Halifax hit, when those first few years of Halifax, and hats went from 100 to double, triple, yeah. quadruple, yeah. more than that, yeah. of that original sum, people saw the potential for what was possible, yeah. and the sound just equated as part of that, yeah. that direction, which yeah. is the reality that we both yeah. faced. I don't like it. But well, it's because yeah. you're old school. I'm old school. You always will be. Yeah, I always will be. So are you old school, David. Oh, I came in at just the right time. You did. You did come. I remember when you come at the right time. It was just perfect in terms of seeing the legends. Yeah, all the best of the best out there. And seeing you... all of them, seeing and learning and being influenced and being taught and being trained. Yeah. I mean, that's the goal for this project as well, is to capture the knowledge so that a new generation has voices and mentors to listen to Yeah. so that they don't just go to YouTube buy the big amp and go out on the street and create something that is nothing other than like find your voice yeah borrow the things karaoke performers they're called be influenced by the best possible things yeah and then create your own reality from within that yeah and continue to pursue it yeah. uh any last words for what what do you want to be remembered for I think that's etched in history now isn't it they're always going to be be remembered me for having a, a formula that was a great formula that worked you know and I was a great at my weight class for three decades right maybe four maybe four I think so four there was a story of a, a famous boxer that was a middleweight and he went up to challenge the heavyweight and his name was Sugar Ray Robinson and he went up to heavyweight and he was fighting the heavyweight champion and he was beating him all the way through but he couldn't come out for the 19th round they fought a numerous amounts of rounds back in the day but he couldn't come out because he got heat exhaustion but if he had come out for the final round he would have won on points and become heavyweight champion but the heat got to him stroke got to me type thing you know so I would have been heavyweight champion of the world. Of the world. But he got to me. I think that's a good way to end it. Yeah. All right. Well, keep fighting. Yeah, I will. Featherweight? Yeah, featherweight. Staying at featherweight, yeah. Staying at featherweight? Staying at featherweight. And your tummy doesn't agree, but I'm looking at No, the tummy doesn't agree. No. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah. 
Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Buscar Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these stories. This episode is proudly sponsored by the Edmonton International Street Performers Festival. Going into its 31st year, the Edmonton International Street Performers Festival is the largest and longest-running festival of its kind in North America. Running July 3rd through 12th, 2015, Street Fest features a cast of international street acts in over 1,500 outdoor shows in downtown Edmonton's Churchill Square. Circle shows, amazing rovers, balloon artist installations, face painters, be-your-own busker workshops, nightly troupe du jour group shows, Kids World, and a late-night madness adult cabaret bring you all the laughs you can handle. Visit edmontonstreetfest.com for more information, and huge thanks to them for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the Donate button. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go to the podcast library, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do consider leaving a review and giving us a five-star rating. It'll take you just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Fame. Follow us on Twitter, Yappy, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And just before wrapping things up, Gazo explains his approach to crowd control. Well, the technique I adopted is where a juggler, you know, you stand up there with a unicycle, instantly you get a crowd. Right. You put a straitjacket on, instantly you get a crowd. With magic, with a table, you don't instantly get a crowd because they think you're scamming them or right. you don't have anything really to show. So I learned very quickly is instead of pulling the crowd to you, you go to the crowd. That means the table will be, you know, 15 feet into the area where they're walking. Right. You build an edge around that and the crowd forms it's easier to say, right, everyone one step out. Right. But it's more difficult to say everybody one step in because they're apprehensive, sure. you know, they're shy or whatever. But once you've got your edge, you just say, no, everybody two steps out, the crowd's bigger instantly. On behalf of myself, Executive Director Lindsay Lindbergh, Associate Producer Magic Bryant, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken. The Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. That's the biggest half ever heard of.